another episode of The Ladies Room. As always, we are your hosts, Jane McManus, and I'm Julie DeCaro. We've got a lot of stuff to get to today, starting, Jane, I think, with Super League. And even if you don't follow soccer, don't worry, we're going to explain it. <laughs> oh, we are? Oh, we yes. are. Well, well, I mean, it's best we can. Yes. Well, I, let, let's start with this, anyway. I, I find soccer to be kind of fascinating because, um, you know... It, our generation, we're, we're oldsters when it comes to um, sports and, you know, have some perspective on this. But when but when we were younger, soccer was a fairly niche sport. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't, people played it, but they didn't watch it in the same way. It wasn't something we that- We couldn't. You, know, you couldn't. Yes, yeah. that's right. A lot of it just wasn't broadcast. And the best matches were in Europe and they didn't, you know, you didn't really get programming in the United States that originated outside of the United States all that much. So the it's pretty been a, a pretty recent phenomenon that you've been able to catch Premier League games live and you know, Mexican League got games live and Bundesliga or you know La Liga or whoever you want to watch. And so I find it really fascinating that yesterday when um, all of these these breakaway teams announced that they were going to form a Super League, uh, that there was so much outrage because we just don't have that institutional tradition in the same way. I mean, a lot of the outrage originated, you know, from, from the halls of power in the UK and other yeah. places, but there was some, you know, there was some American fans who were pretty outraged too. And I just find that a funny phenomenon because it is such a recent, you know, in quotes sport. Well, yeah. I mean, here's, so when I was a kid and, and I grew up in a, in a pretty soccer crazy household in a pretty soccer crazy area of the country, um, you know, once in a while, somebody's dad would come back from the UK with like a videotape of EPL matches. And that's how we would watch. Or like on Saturday or Sunday mornings, we could turn the giant antenna on the top of our house towards Chicago and get some Mexican league matches on like Mexican stations on like Spanish stations. Um, and that was the only place we could watch it, or you had to go live to watch the Chicago sting. Um, so yeah, I mean, it really has exploded. I mean, look, it's the most popular sport in the world for a reason. Right. And, um, you know, the fact that we now have that I can turn on my TV Saturday morning and watch pretty much any league around the world that I want to, is still kind of amazing to me. Well, and so much of this, what what I find this really interesting about this phenomenon is so much of it is driving um, live programming for streaming services for Paramount or for Peacock, you're able to exclusively see matches live. Yeah. And so I think it's done some really interesting things in terms of the demographics of who is actually purchasing streaming services. We've done some research at Maris that will be coming out this week, but I can I can give a little bit of a, a sneak peek. Ooh, preview. <laughs> a little bit of a sneak peek. But you're not going to be surprised, but there are younger fans, obviously, younger men who are consuming um, live sports through these streaming programs, but also the demographic breakdown is very much um, according to fan bases that you would think would be attracted to soccer and would be watching soccer live. So I think it's really the most interesting thing I think that's going to come up with what's happening, um, you know, with the super league is who's going to be streaming it in the United States. How's that going to work? What are those rights going to look like and how much are they going to go for? 
well, I'm not even sure this thing is going to get off the ground. And here's why. So if you don't understand, um, you know, imagine that there is uh, Major League Baseball across let's say the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, right? And Canada has its own league and Mexico has its own league and the U.S. has MLB. And the Yankees, Dodgers, Giants, Boston, Cubs, and the Cardinals decide they're going to join with like the four best teams from Canada and the four biggest teams from Mexico. And they're all going to form their own MLB. And everyone else is left out in the cold. So imagine what that does to all the other teams when suddenly you're watching the AL East with no Boston and no Yankees and you're watching the NL Central with no Cubs and no Cardinals. And so basically like all the marquee teams from every league, whether it's British EPL League or France's League 1 or Serie A in Italy or La Liga in Spain, basically everybody but Bundesliga in Germany is their best teams are all leaving to join the Super League. Now, the biggest issue is going to be, in addition to what it does to all the other teams in their leagues, is that, and I totally lost my train of thought. It's happening more and more lately. Like, I think there's something really wrong with me. Um, Oh, that FIFA and UEFA, which is the the league that, which is the oversight committee for all of Europe soccer. The ones that are are run by men and do all the bad things. Yes. That's also (laughs) FIFA. So we can say that it's also the Olympic committee. We can say this about a lot of things. But yeah, I mean, they have said, and FIFA runs every soccer tournament in the world from AYSO all the way up to the World Cup. So when FIFA says, if you go to the Super League, you will never play another FIFA match again, that's huge because suddenly that means none of these guys can play in the World Cup and a bunch of lesser tournaments too. But the World Cup is the one we really care about. So now if you're Christian Pulisic who plays for the U.S. and you're at Chelsea who's breaking away to form the Super League, do you care more about your career playing for Chelsea or do you care more about playing for the World Cup for the United States? I would think most of these guys are going to pick their their teams and their league. Really? Okay. So I was, you know, as I, as you know, I lived in, in the UK uh, for the most recent uh, World Cups, plural, mm-hmm. uh, men's and women's. And for the men's World Cup, uh, England did very well and uh, reached the, the semifinal. And I can tell you, it's like, it was, it, it, I can't really describe, it doesn't really compare to anything in the U.S. Like no. maybe U.S. women's national team when they play. Um, but, but really just the, the scope, I mean, the, the thing is that the women's team there, it's, it's a, it's a infant of a team compared to the history and the tradition abroad when it comes to world cup and men's world cup in particular. And I, I just, I mean, I think it's a, I think that's a real draw. I, I, you know, so I, I see where you're coming from when you're talking about the, the power that people holds, but these are the, these are the teams that, and the ones that have pulled away, you know, Man City, Barcelona, Chelsea, um, Real Madrid, like all of these teams, they are the ones that are the most popular internationally and can command, they could, if they broke away, command incredible broadcast fees. Um, And, you know, it's just, you don't have the same sort of geographic impediment to being able to play against each other that you did when these leagues were founded. And honestly, like, I mean, I think if you quizzed most American fans on, you know, like, you know, where's Manchester <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, where's Barcelona? Like they might be able to get the countries right. I mean, we're terrible at geography in this country. Let's be honest. Like, we don't know where they are. So, you know, it, it Look, America is big enough. I mean, nothing's to remember between America and Canada. I don't need to get into Europe. 
<laughs> exactly. Where is Saskatchewan? I don't know. Toronto, is that on the East Coast or the West Coast of Canada? It's on the East Coast. Pick it out on a map, you know? (laughs) No, I mean, I completely agree. And, you know, for me, the World Cup is... The World Cup is the main event and everything else is filler in between the World Cup. That's how I've always looked at it. But but that is because I live in a country where growing up, the only time I really got to see soccer was every four years. So, um, you know, it's different for, for people in the UK. And, you know, Sam Fells wrote a really interesting column yesterday. Deadspin saying part of the outrage about this is that unlike in the US where the leagues are have all the power and then the teams sort of all have to submit to the league. There's only a league because of all the clubs in the UK. Like these clubs started individually in neighborhoods and you would send like the best lads from your neighborhood out to play the other neighborhood. And they have been around for a hundred years before the EPL came into existence. So it's, it's a totally different dynamic that it is. Soccer is and football, as they say over there is much more viewed as like of the people by the people and for the people. And this idea of, our only job is to come in and make as much money as possible for our team is a very American sort of, you know, sentiment. And they're very upset by it. Well, and I can just tell you from having lived there, I, I, you know, I had a cab driver whose son played in one of the affiliate, you know, like teams locally, like ham or something like that at Richmond or, you know, one Mm -hmm. of those. And, And they really do take, you know, young, you know, there are a lot of like young kids who it's, you know, it's because they don't have a college system there. These teams end up also being part of the social fabric because they're, you know, all of these kids, the, the young talented soccer players are all training through these clubs, um, and, and making, you know, making decent enough wage for a young person to be able to do it. I, I mean, I think, you know, it's a really interesting system. It's really ingrained. It'll be, it'll be neat to see what happens with this. I mean, you know, just somebody who doesn't have the, the emotional connection to the idea of a league and place mm-hmm. in the same way. I mean, I kind of think it's a good idea. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm you know, address your hate mail to Julie DeCaro. <laughs> at- <laughs> and they, they already do. Don't worry. Uh, <laughs> they know the address. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's really exciting to think of the idea of, you know, Manchester playing Barcelona every year or, or Chelsea playing Madrid every year without having to earn your way into the Champions League. But I think that was part of what people uh, appreciate about it is that you do have to earn your way there. And, you know, for so long, we have pointed at uh, EPL and, and relegation as something that we should have in this country because it takes away the we're just going to uh, not try and make a ton of money. Um, you know, thing that that they so many teams and especially Major League Baseball are doing right now in the U.S. Um, right. Our only job is to make money and we don't care about the product on the field. If you do that in EPL, you get sent down to Champions League and, you know, now you can figure it out and how, how you're going to do it without being able to play in the league. So, you know, people have been pointing to that for years as the way we should be doing things here. And, and I think right. that seeing them, I, I thought that we would go that way before they would go our way, but I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should probably get to our guest because I feel like I could kind of talk about this all day. Yeah, me too. All right. So we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back here in the ladies room. Welcome back to the ladies room. Joining us today is, is absolutely a fantastic guest who are so excited that she is able to join us here today. She was the first woman to coach for a major league baseball organization. 
She uh, is the first woman to throw a major league batting practice to the Indians in 2011. And she was a consultant to League of Her Own. And you probably follow her on Twitter and probably know how much she does to try to get women involved in the game of baseball, not softball, but baseball is the fantastic Justine Siegel. Justine, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so I, you know, I was one of those girls, Justine, who loved baseball, who, and I know this story is the story of so many women. You play t-ball with the boys and you play baseball and suddenly at some point, girls start getting shunted off into softball. Do you have any idea how that started and why? Yes, so um, in Little League, when Maria Pepe uh, was sued back in 19... Let me start over. Maria Pepe sued Little League in 1972 when she wasn't allowed to play baseball. They actually ripped her off the team and said a girl can't play. And um, they sued and then Little League was allowed, was forced to allow girls to play baseball. And um, their response was to create a slow pitch softball league and, you know, put the girls in shorts and um, visors. And that was that was that. And um, of course, fast pitches is, is a much bigger game now and, and, and a difficult game. But that was the big divide. That's the big modern divide is when baseball, Little League was forced to allow girls to play baseball. They started softball. What is the technically what's the difference from the point of view of someone who's pitched her whole life? What's the difference in softball sure. and baseball in terms of like what you need skill wise? Well, softball is thrown underhand, so the ball travels differently. The ball's off, also bigger, and the field is smaller. Uh, so the ball and the bat is lighter and longer. So it just travels a bit differently. It bounces differently. Um, and then baseball, everyone knows because they watch Major League Baseball, is overhand. Um, and I think the question is not which sport is better. It's why don't girls have true access to both? Right. And I'm, I guess, and I'm asking, like, is there a skill set that, and, and, and I've been a proponent on this podcast a million times for not gendering sports, um, but for, you know, this sport is for girls, this sport is for boys. I just, I don't even understand why that, you know, is a, is the dividing line, but, but what are the skill sets that, that you think, you know, baseball thinks makes one good for girls and one good for, for boys? Well, you tend to need more strength in baseball because the field's longer. So it's a longer throw. Um, the bases are, are further as well, but I think the skill set is, is pretty similar. Um, there's definitely a lot of, um, a lot of things there that, you know, transfer really well if you were to go back and forth, but (laughs) to me, it's just softball is a different game than baseball. And so I want girls to know they can play either sport. Right. And I mean, I I was a, a kid who loved baseball and I know there's lots of, of kids who love softball, but it's a different game. Um, and I didn't want to play softball. I wanted to play baseball, um, you know, and we've all seen, of course, I know Jenny Finch did this infamously. Justin, you may have done it for all I know that we had we've seen like fast pitch softballers, you know, grow to major league hitters and, and have seen them be shocked by how, you know, how hard it is to hit a, a well-thrown softball. Um, so I, I guess the question is, you know, we've all heard this rumor that, you know, a, that a, a base or the softball spends as much time over the plate as a major league fastball. W- what is the difference in, um, 
you know, the, the amount of skill that it takes to hit the ball, obviously softball is bigger and, and you have to, you know, be strong to make it go farther. And I, and in Chicago, we play 16 inch softball, which drives me crazy. Cause it's like, it's impossible to move the ball if you're, you know, unless you're like a big, strong guy, but you know, it, it, it's one of those things that we've seen that, that it's major league baseball hitters have had a hard time hitting a softball. Well, softball travels differently. For example, softball has a rise ball. Baseball doesn't really have that. Um, so when you when you take into consideration how fast our best softball pitchers are throwing, mm-hmm. like our our Olympians and our and our D one, they you know and you put in it's like literally the Little League World Series, right? <laughs> when you throw forty six sixty, and then they say this is the equivalent of ninety miles an hour. Um, you know, you can kind of do the same thing with softball with how fast the ball is traveling versus the distance that it travels versus what a baseball is traveling. And, and like I say, you get the exact same numbers, but you certainly get up there. And um, it's definitely a challenge to hit um, th- that fastball coming in. Mm-hmm. It just comes in differently. So Major League Baseball has, I think in recent years, looked at women playing baseball as an issue that falls under that kind of diversity and inclusion umbrella. And do you, do you think that they've made inroads Are inroads being made are more girls being encouraged to continue with baseball? Yeah. So I founded the nonprofit baseball for all um, for girls to play coach and lead in baseball. And since we held the first national girls baseball tournament, 2015 uh, starting with 13 year olds, MLB has come on board and said, we support girls and baseball. And in fact, um, when they list their sports, they'll say that they provide opportunities for baseball, softball, and girls baseball, which is incredible. I started talking to them about girls baseball maybe eight years ago, maybe 10 at this point. So like, it's, it's fantastic to sort of have their support. You know, there's obviously more they can do, but they're now on board and now I'm telling leagues, hey, you got to let girls play baseball. Um, so, so that's really phenomenal. They run three programs of their own. I mean, I was doing it alone for so long and, and constantly you, you'd go up to a big brand and they'd say, well, you're the only one doing it. And now that MLB um, is saying vocally that, you know, girls baseball is important and they're running their events as well. You know, that that matters. That is progress. What is that? So are they are they collaborating with you or do you, do you find support within Major League Baseball for what you're doing as well then? Yeah, their youth department uh, run by David James and Liz Ben specifically does the girls programming. Um, I, I speak to them regularly and then they run their own programs like the Trailblazers or the Grit Series. And uh, many of those girls cross over from my program. But um you know, what girl doesn't want to wear MLB on her, on her shirt. So yeah. it's, it's pretty exciting for them to get that kind of special experience. It's a start. There's a lot more for them to do, but it's a start. Well, yeah, Justine. And I mean, a lot of people think that, you know, the first time we see a woman play in, you know, a pro sport with men, it'll be a kicker in the NFL. I personally think it would, I would have said it was going to be a loogie um, before we, we brought in the three batter rule in MLB. But I personally think that there's no reason why a woman couldn't, be a reliever. I mean, certainly we've seen relievers in major league baseball who aren't fireballers who, you know, who are a little bit craftier, who have weird movement on their ball. What do you see? I mean, do you see a possibility of women playing in major league baseball? See, that's 
I mean, that's definitely possible. Pitching is all about deception. So, you know, as, as long as you can deceive the batter with different speed and location and movement, then you're getting outs. You know, it doesn't matter if the outs 270 feet <laughs> or whether it's a dribble to third base. Right. So um, I would definitely put my my vote on a pitcher, particularly a left-handed pitcher. Um, but then, you you know, you watch someone like Wakefield pitch, um, you know, and a woman could certainly throw the ball 80 miles an hour. And I think really you're going to see women throwing upper 80s in the next 10 years. Really? Wow. I've already got a couple of young women who are 22 and under who are throwing 83. That's wow. fantastic. Because I think of Jamie Moyer, like at the end of his career. And I mean, he wasn't even a reliever. He was still in the starting rotation. And, you know, he was throwing in the 80s, but he just had such crazy movement on his ball. And I've always been like, you know, why couldn't a woman do this? And so that's sort of what I've been waiting for. So where are we in terms of like, where are the women playing uh, that have a shot at someday making it to Major League Baseball? Where where are they playing? Um, they play in men's leagues or or boys leagues. So Jamie McKay's out here in California. She's playing in her high school and travel ball. She's eighty three, throwing eighty three, five ten, and and a total stick. So if you were to project, you know, add 10, 15 pounds on her of muscle, why wouldn't that eighty three turn into eighty eight easily? Mm. Um, so when you start to do that kind of the same projections that you would do with men and young, you know, young men. It, it makes sense that they're going to be able to throw faster. Kel- Kelsey Whitmore is another woman who um, played with the Sonoma Stompers and made national news with their men's independent team. And she's also went on and went to, you know, got in the weight room and is just a beast right now and throwing hard. And that, that's what it takes. It's, it's really interesting. It's, it's less about them about being female as it is to have true opportunity to train like the boys do. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have to tell you, considering how much time you've spent around baseball, um, you know, it's one thing for a player to be ready to play, uh, a woman to be ready to play. It's another for baseball to be ready to accommodate and to accept a woman who is is ready and whose game is ready. Do you, What do you think, how far we've come in terms of that? It's an interesting question. And I just look at the coaching staff and you know, now your strength and conditioning coaches, you know, I, I was coaching professionally and, and just trying to get jobs wherever I could for so long all alone. And people just kept telling me like, you're crazy. You know, like they'd listen to me and then I would never get a call back um, or rarely get a call back. And so, but then suddenly, you know, we have six women who are coaching professionally and um, over 20 in some kind of coaching role in major league baseball. So I think the tide has turned and um, particularly with these particular women, you know, they grow up playing with the boys. They grow up playing with the men. This is going to be someone who's gone to college and played. And, and I think the respect will be there. Will it be difficult? Absolutely. But I think that the respect will be there. So, all right. So, so we've got a bunch of women coaching. I mean, and, and uh, you know, I, I really feel for them because of some of the things that we've, um, you know, some of the news that has come out of baseball that anyone who's worked in or around baseball knew all too well. Some of the me too stories coming out. Um, we've got women, you know, I, I imagine there, you know, if you're a woman coaching a major league baseball, you are likely the only woman 
Um, I, I don't know if there's anybody that has more than one woman working in their, you know, working in the ranks of their of their organizations. Um, we, one of the things that we've always talked about on this podcast is we don't understand why when everybody is trying to expand their audience, whether we're talking about sports talk radio or whether we're talking about baseball or the NFL or, or whatever, this audience of women who really love the sport seems to just be sitting there for the taking. And nobody seems to have really made a huge move to try to court women as their audience. You know, either we get like pink hats or we get, you know, ladies night, come drink wine and we'll have hot players talk to you about how tight their pants are. And, uh, you know, so what is Major League Baseball doing, if anything, to to court women into uh, the ranks of, you know, the diehards? I think, you know, we look at the NFL where women make up nearly 50 percent of the audience. And I know it's lower than that in baseball. It's closer to a third. So is there um, a recognition in Major League Baseball that bringing more women into the fold is going to be better for their bottom line? I, th- I think they have that recognition. I mean, how they go about it is, is like you said, is it another bedazzled shirt? Um, or or are they going to, you know, really invite women to the game? Um, my understanding is about 40% of women are fans. Uh, women make up about 80% of the purchasing decisions. So it's kind of like, why wouldn't you want women to be fans if they're deciding whether or not uh, tickets will be made or uh, Christmas or Hanukkah presents are going to be the Dodgers or the Yankees uh, jerseys. Um, I think uh, there's definitely this idea that if we get youth to play baseball, then they'll become fans and they'll buy tickets. And I think that is probably what I've seen to be the biggest biggest push for diversity in, in the fandom is to try to get them when they're kids. You know, I can remember when I started covering sports back in the late 90s. 98 I, was my once was my one year as a baseball fan, I, because when you become a reporter, it, it gets drilled out of you pretty quickly. But I was a Yankees fan that year and I spent a lot of time in the bleachers keeping score of games, just trying to kind of get the game down. I hadn't grown up a baseball fan, but I figured if I wanted to cover it, um, then I better know what I was talking about. And I do remember, you know, listening to the fan and there was Doris from Rigo Park, who was like a huge Mets fan who would always call in. And there were always women out in the bleachers keeping score with me. I was, you know, rarely the only one. And um, so I kind of felt like, you know, baseball's always had that, um, had that fan base, but never really, uh, never acknowledged it almost, you know, that there were all of these women out there who knew the game and were keeping score. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would say we, we acknowledge them as in, you know, what kids meal are they going to buy <laughs> versus, you know, like, no, they actually know the game and they want to have discussions and they want to learn more and they wanted something other than a pink t-shirt to show that they're fans. Um, I definitely think women are now, sort of on the rise, right? There's more female announcers. Um, so there's more public figures that are in baseball that are women versus just like women who are cheerleaders or fan leaders or stuff like that, you know, like more real. I don't, I don't want to like, I was going to say real roles, but that's not really the right term. Well, maybe you know, leadership women, roles is a better yes, way. But the, yes. You do and, have Kim Eng as well being, you know, named Marlon's GM. And I, I think that occupy that's such a statement, I and obviously it's overdue, but it is a real statement about women expanding the roles beyond what the those gender expectations are. But I also think it's a statement about men who have been the gatekeepers 
bringing women in, right? So women haven't just suddenly become qualified. They've been qualified, but the gatekeepers have been men who haven't been ready. And and now I think that um, teams are beginning to see that diversity makes a difference. Diversity helps teams win and helps teams make money. Yeah. You know, one of my, I was just watching Moneyball like two days ago, which is one of my favorite baseball movies. And, you know, there's this, you know, around the time that, you know, all these guys came into the, into major league baseball when the A's were, you know, rising in the Moneyball times and Billy Bean was in Oakland and Theo Epstein was in Boston. And, you know, you'd all these guys sort of that were, came from, from Wall Street or came from law school and their background was really in data. It wasn't really in baseball. It wasn't in sports. Although Billy Bean's background was in baseball obviously. But my point is, you know, and especially when I look at like Houston and like freaking Brandon Taubman, and we all know like, you know, his whole thing down in Houston, he was like a Wall Street guy. And 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 I guess the question is, if we can see guys coming to work in these front office roles that come just from dealing with numbers and not really having a baseball background, why don't we see women doing that? Well, first, I think it's because women need to be overqualified right. to get the same position. Um, and second, I think eventually you will see that you'll see people who study data, women coming over from college, you know, I mean, it's not just, it's like students need, female students need to know that if they study this, there's an actual career path for them, you know, being, being the first, you know, like it's an honor, but it's kind of a crazy thing to do to go on this path that no one else has ever been on. So the more women that are actually being hired, you know, I, I know that there'll be more students in the pipeline trying to get those jobs too. Okay. So I've pulled two quotes from this conversation so far, and um, that's definitely one being first is an honor, but it's a crazy thing to do. Absolutely. And then pitching is all about deception. Those are my two takeaways. <laughs> those will be on the test later on. Definitely. <laughs> But I think you're exactly right. I mean, and, you know, a woman who's, or or let's say, you know, Taubman or somebody like that, it's considered innovative, thinking outside the box to bring somebody like that in. But at the same time, it's never considered innovative and thinking outside the box to bring a woman in. It's considered charity in a lot of times. And, um, and then that makes it, that's a difficult position to work from if you're within an organization. And, I I do, I mean, I am concerned about that. Um, But I think, you know, what you're talking about with the critical mass of coaches that women in coaching at baseball, that that could make it a bit easier if it's all kind of everyone at once. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's not as new. Um, But also you have to give uh, the players some credit in the sense that they've grown up, uh, they've gone to college, they've gone to high school where girls have been playing right alongside them you know they know that their female athletes can go into the um weight room and lift as much as they can um their mothers have grown up playing sports so i think you're just seeing sort of a cultural shift something that um we can all thank title nine for and you're just seeing a a sort of a new young man who's grown up along along with these other females you know um, winning math competitions and doing doing science, all these things that were supposedly women and girls shouldn't be doing. So I think I think there's a time change is what I'm trying to say. And, and what that, about parents then too? Forward. Yeah, and and then the parents that you deal with, the parents of the girls who are in your program, do you, is there is it tough to get them? I mean, is the same is there the same kind of learning curve for them as well? Um, that's a good question. So just to put some numbers out there, there's about 100,000 girls playing youth baseball in the U.S. and about 2,000 playing high school baseball. 
So where's the 98,000 girls going? You know, you have to assume they didn't lose their love for the game. So it's, it's a real big combination of people telling them they need to switch to softball. It's, it's often adults saying, hey, you can't play anymore. It doesn't matter about your skill. You'll never get bigger. You'll never be good enough, you know, and they're nine years old. Um, so it's, it's still a big um, mountain to climb. But I do believe that we're at a tipping point um, where good things are happening. You know, Justine, I was just looking at your your Twitter timeline before we we started talking, and and I noticed that a lot of times you're saying, you know, if, hey, if you want to start a baseball club at your college, give me a call, or if you want to do this, you know, reach out to me. So, so tell us about your organization, Baseball for All, and how do you we go about making baseball more accessible for women around the country? Yeah, so I was 13 when I was first told I should quit baseball uh, because I was a girl. And um, amazingly, in 2021, that is still being told to girls around the country. So I created Baseball for All to um, bring those girls together and let them know that they're perfect as they are. And that, you know, I think we all agree that baseball is the greatest game and that they want to play. So we help communities start girls teams and then provide events for them to go in. We also do leadership programming, but mostly it's about getting girls um, in the game. Uh, But our new initiative is at the college level, which is um, to start women's college club baseball uh, on campuses and then convert that, you know, the goal is to convert it into an NCAA sport. And so this will be our first year doing it. And that's why we're looking for faculty and students who are willing to start the team with our mentorship. And uh, we will have a championship this year for uh, college teams. That's fantastic. I would have loved the opportunity to play even as an intramural sport baseball in college. Um, Yeah, I think a lot of us feel, you know, a lot of us that have a real deep love for the game. uh, It was like I was converted into a fan at a much younger age than I wanted to be because I wanted to be a player and, um, you know, didn't want to play softball. To me, it was a completely different game. And when baseball was no longer an option for me, it was like, okay, well, I guess I'm done playing that. And I wonder how many girls go down that path. I would say um, enough girls have have decided that if baseball's not for them, they're going to go do something else. You know, we, it's not just if they don't play baseball, they go play softball. It's just like your experience, you know, who knows where they're going, and um, probably lacrosse or soccer. Yeah, that, that's 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 very true. And I wound up playing soccer. Justine, we're really grateful for for what you're doing for girls. And we're so grateful for your time. Um, you know, like I said, it's it's something that I've long thought about, that, that if there was ever going to be a sport that a woman was going to break into and play with men, that it could be baseball. Um, and here's to hoping that we see that in our lifetimes. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for having me. I love you guys. Aw, oh, <laughs> that's so nice. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Welcome back. So glad that we were able to have Justine Siegel here. I have admired her from afar for years, and uh, it was exciting to get to talk to her. And I really hope there's a generation of girls out there that grow up being allowed to play baseball all the way through. Because you know what? People say, oh, women will never play in Major League Baseball. How do you know? How do you know? We've never had a woman who's had been invested in in baseball from the time she was a kid all the way up. Right. And, And what I love about talking to her is like she's somebody who's been absolutely in the trenches for the last 20 years with this conversation. And I do think we may be turning a corner now, um, but it also just goes to show you like 20 years 
just like hitting your head against a brick wall. Yeah. I, you know, I, I just think, you know, the, the amount of love that you have to have for a game to be able to put up with the, the number of no's that she's gotten over the years. It's mm-hmm. incredible. I wonder if her and Sam Rappaport know each other. I'm sure they do. I feel like they should. <laughs> if they don't, let us know. We'll make an introduction. Like, yeah, no, I, I completely <laughs> agree. And, and I appreciate what she's doing. Cause like I said, I was a girl who gave up softball, gave up playing, you know, a similar sport because I didn't want to. Um, so I, I always appreciate that. So before we go, I, you know, I, I try not to have every waking second of my day be about sexual assault allegations, um, even though people are constantly sending me stuff on Twitter. Like, did you see this? Did you see this? And I'm like, yes, I see all of it. I swim in it daily. Please right. don't feel like you have to keep sending me every time there's sexual assault. Anyway, um, but, you know, I saw in uh, over at ESPN this morning that the Mavericks um, have fired Tony Ronzone or Ronzoni, I'm not sure, um, after a sexual assault allegation last July. And I'm pretty sure that this was John Wertheim, who, by the way, is doing a great job on 60 Minutes. Yeah, he um, is. he's killing it. He is really killing it. Uh, yeah, this was this was John Wertheim and Jessica Luther um, who did this story um, about uh, a woman saying that he sexually assaulted her and the team cleared him after their investigation. Jessica and John said, well, they didn't look at critical evidence. Uh, The Mavericks issued a statement saying the story was meritless and it was a hatchet job and all kinds of horrible things. Well, now it turns out that they've had to fire him because, quote, more information has come to light. Um, Yeah, more information, more information. That's what it was. Uh, You know, again, are they going to go back and undo the damage that they that, you know, teams do a lot of damage when they immediately dismiss people and they. Again, they, you know, they pull out of the grab bag of tropes um, about men and women who makes claims and uh, of sexual or say they were sexually harassed uh, or assaulted by someone affiliated with the sports team. And that that grab bag includes, you know, lying or gold digging or, you know, uh, wanted it or, you know, they're, they're all of these different tropes. And it feels like they just kind of put all the chips in a bag, shake them up and then pull one out. It does a lot of damage because that is in the initial story that comes out, which is when people are paying attention to it. So when right. six months later, somebody issues a press release like, oh, yeah, we had to let him go. We were wrong. Bye. It's just yeah. so it's so disappointing because, again, they let they let that the immediacy of that uh, smear go unchallenged. They don't do anything to reel it back in. They should, you know, somebody should be, Mark Cuban should be standing on a, a mountaintop somewhere saying, we were wrong. We jumped to a conclusion that was damaging to people who suffer, who, who are sexually assaulted and harassed. Yeah. Mark Cuban's not going to do that. Which, well, he, which was, he does I mean, like to do fun stunt type things. Yeah. Like maybe he'll hear this podcast and be like, okay, I can stand on a mountaintop and say that he might do that. It'd be fun. He, you know, he he's an alum of IU and, um, you know, he's given a lot of money to the media school and uh, they uh, are very big fans of his there, understandably. Um, but, you know, I, I struggle with him because I do feel like sometimes he does absolutely the right thing. And then other times he just gets it so wrong and, um, you know, and doubles down on it over and over on being wrong. Um, yeah, he's you know, he's been told that he's he's so smart because he's rich. And I get that. And I think he I think he does a lot of the right things. And, you know, he's somebody who, even though I disagree with him, I think he's trying to do the right thing most of the time. I just think he is not he doesn't examine his own biases, maybe as much as he thinks he does and that that gets him into trouble. 
Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, and I just, you know, I wanted to bring it up because we saw the exact same thing happen again uh, yesterday with Deshaun Watson's attorney coming out, um, basically calling all 22 women who have accused him liars. And, you know, this has been, this started with the Kobe Bryant case. Not that it was the first time it had ever been done, but this is the first time that I think you, that was the first time that I think le- intentionally getting the victim's name out there, leaking the information to the public so that they could harass this woman and call her all kinds of names um, was really a strategy. And it's one that we've seen in the Derrick Rose trial when they uh, you know, demanded that she not be allowed to proceed by her uh, by her Jane Doe moniker. And they did the same thing in this case. And, you know, there's only one reason that you, they know who this person is. They have all their contact info. They can find out anything they want about them. They want them out there. So the pub, they want their name out there. So the public knows who they are. So the public will help them dig into their background and slut shame them and pressure them to drop these cases. Um, and you know, it's, it, no matter how many times we see it over and over and over, it's really disappointing how many people continue to fall for the same goddamn playbook. Well, and this is why you would have to, it would be really challenging. I think you'd have to be really dedicated to the lie, not to say that it couldn't happen, but you, to, in order to, in order to put yourself through that, I mean, this will dissuade way more men and women who have legitimate claims of harassment and assault from coming forward. Um, again, those, the number of false claims in rape and assault and harassment cases is around S is estimated to be around 8%, which is the same for robbery and all of the other crimes that you will find on a blotter. There is, there is no, there's no market in, in making rape, rape claims, uh, without merit for the, you know, for the most part, there are always people who are going to make false claims about everything. Uh, but they're no more likely to do it in rape and sexual assault or massage there. A group of massage therapists are not, you know, are, are, are no less likely to spontaneously come forward and say that a player um, has behaved inappropriately with them than, than in any other arena of life. And um, so for this, again, it's, it, it's so disappointing in sports because this is where so many young men get their ideas about yep. who women are and how they behave in the world. And so whenever you have a high profile uh, person like Deshaun Watson, who has been, who has done a lot of good things in other areas of his life, but for anyone, that doesn't mean that you can't also uh, make uh, bad decisions or, or do th- things like commit um, uh, assault or harass someone. It It is not, you know, it's not a, a, a it, it, it's not a barrier, right? Being a good person who gives money to charity. Anybody, anybody who saw Westworld would know that. <laughs> the main character in that is a great guy who gives a lot of money to charity. And then he goes to Westworld and he, you know, does yeah, bad Ed things. Ed Harris. Yes, no. exactly. And I'm not saying that Deshaun Watson is Ed Harris here, but I'm just saying that we can conceive of people who would be good in most areas of their life. Now he he should get his day in court, absolutely. But this is not, you know, what he's doing in the realm of public arena, what Rusty Harden's doing in the realm of public arena is not the day in court. Right, right. Uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, and people have such a lack of understanding of how the justice system works that they, you know, even in cases where there's criminal allegations, they are like, uh, oh, she's uh, she's trying to get money. And it's like, no, this isn't, this isn't even civil. This is criminal. 
She right. just wants him to go to be punished for what he did. She's not asking for money. I mean, the Patrick Kane case, she never asked for money. And everyone is screaming about how this is a money grab. I mean, we just have got to do better than just, you know, believing whatever the lawyer. And, and think of this, too. When when a player is accused, it is not just him. It is not just him and his lawyer. He is getting support from his team, from his attorneys, from his, a team of attorneys, from his publicist, from his agent, from all his fans. And the amount of pressure that they can bring to bear on one single person is tremendous. So yeah. it's not whenever I say it's he said, she said, it's not. It's she said. And he said, and they said, and they said, and they said, and they said. It is, he has an entire nation of people standing behind him. And to be able to say all these 22 women were, you know, it's the industrialization of victim smearing. And it's, I mean, I'm like you, I I look at it, I look at the story and I see it. And it's so disheartening to see that this still goes on um, after everything that we know about sexual assault and harassment and the, the kind of the, how damaging it is when it happens around a team, just because again, the messages that it sends to young people who um, are forming their ideas of how men and women interact, because for the most part, these are women who bring these allegations. Um, But it, you know, harassment happens to men and women. It's not, it's not just women. Right. On that happy note, Yay! <laughs> anything good? Should we add something good at the end? Have you done anything exciting? Or well, I know you went to the Met, which was exciting. I did. I went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art this last weekend, and it was. I mean, I haven't gone to a museum, you know, in a year. I love going to museums. Not, <laughs> I don't just like sports. I also like other things, <laughs> and I like sculpture. And so, um, and I like you know classical sculpture. And so went and just spent a little time, you know, sitting amongst the marble and it was glorious. Last time I was at the Met, I touched a Degas and uh, immediately the security guard was on me. I don't know why. I was so, I was just so, what is that material? Like, you know, and I just uh, started touching. Did you, was it the the tool of the, of, of like the- It, um, it was bronze. Ballerina outfit so or the- I don't remember. I just remember looking at it and it said it was bronze, but it just didn't look like it. And so I was like, maybe it's a cast of, or something. And I, I don't know, just before I, I could stop myself, I touched it and then boom. And I was like, wow. Yes. Well, let me tell, so Julie, I'm going to be angry at you on behalf of all uh, museum conservators everywhere because my father was the head conservator for the Air and Space Museum for many years and actually worked with metals and the conservation of metals. And you have little oils on your fingertips. I know, I know this. And they can be quite corrosive. I'm not going to tell you about the time I spilled an entire bottle of water in Marie Antoinette's bedroom at Versailles. I'll that for another time. <laughs> oh, I don't want to know. La, 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 la. <laughs> so bad. Picture a bunch of angry French people just like... <laughs> Just like shaking their heads in disappointment at me. Oh, exactly. Oh, brutal. Americans. Thank oh, you for God. making us all look bad. I made us because bad. of that. We have the Super League. And I wanted to be yeah, exactly right. And I wanted to be like, you know what? People used to like take dumps and pee in the corners of this place. Like, don't try to tell me. <laughs> That's true. Versailles is supposed to be the smelliest place in all of France. Yeah, because people back were in the just, day of Louis XIV. Because people would just go to the bathroom in the corners. <laughs> Can you imagine? Oh if you God. couldn't find the piss bucket boy, then you would just do it yourself. Yeah. And I don't think there ever was a dump bucket boy. I think you just went. 
<laughs> and there were dogs everywhere that were also doing the same thing. So when wow, you imagine... Wow. So you, you wanted to end on a positive note that this is where we've gone. <laughs> and now we have Super League. Thanks and for now listening. We have Super League. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Obama. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Uh, we'll see you guys next week. Hope that you will read our work over at Deadspin. Give us a follow at Jane Sports and at Julie DeCaro on Twitter. We'll see you next week in the ladies' room.